0: Together. Thanks
1: for listening to the KC Morning Show.
2: Everything's running smoothly.
1: Yo, yo, yo! Yo! What is going on? My name's Hartzell. And this right here It's your KC Morning Show, baby! Happy to? Day, what's the word? Kansas City. You know what we do on Tuesdays? We take back America. Myself and Professor Harvey K, Professor Emeritus over at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay, and since it is a holiday week, we thought we'd do something a little different. Yeah, we're gonna take it back. The year was 2008, and Professor Harvey K was chatting with the one and only Bill Moyers of PBS. That's right, our boy Harvey. He's a big time, ladies and gentlemen, and of course they talk in Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine and that promise of freedom. This is an excellent interview. I cannot wait for you to hear it. And I believe next week, we're going to take it to FDR. In fact, we may be playing one of Professor K's other television interviews with Bill Moyers. It was FDR and the fight for the four freedoms. I think I said we were doing that today, yesterday. Yeah, I was wrong. I I looked at the wrong email. So today, Thomas Paine and Harvey K and Bill Moyers next week, Professor K, Bill Moyers and FDR, all on your KC Morning Show. A good day to be a Kansas Cityan. Always. My name's Hartzell. We'll see ya in the morning. Oh, we lost it. We'll pitch you today. That's all right. Bye. I can't seem to find my toothbrush, so I'll pick one up when I go out today. Other than that, I'm in good shape.
0: The KC Morning Show. Hartzell's got a great idea. Because it's the Christmas week and a lot of people need time to get ready for the holidays, Hartzell is going to grab hold of the audio of my interview with Bill Moyers, the very first of three major interviews I do with Bill Moyers. And this one is from 2008, produced to celebrate Thomas Paine's birthday, January 29th. That year, it's basically Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. That, that'll that be what it is. Okay, I hope you all enjoy it. It's not not terribly long. It was my first opportunity to be in studio with Bill Moyers. All I can say is Bill Moyers is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic.
1: And after that, we had FDR the first week of, gosh, the first week of 2022. My goodness. The new year. So since you'll be hearing this Moyers
0: episode, let, let me tell you how Bill and I met. This goes back to 2008 and four, when I was delivering my book manuscript for publication to Farrar Strauss and Giroux in New York. My editor and I had become friends. I, I had already sent it in by, by mail, but I, was gonna, I flew to New York so he and I could have lunch and really talk about the next step in getting the book into print and, and market it. When I got there, he said, before we go to lunch, I want you to spend an hour with the marketing people so that we can develop some spin to promote the book. So I met with the marketing director, the public relations director, and one of the publicists. And they talked to me as if we were in a radio show. They were quizzing me about the book to get ideas for promoting it. After an hour, my editor, Thomas Le Bien, who's probably the best editor imaginable, came in to break up this conversation to say, Harvey, it's time we got to go to lunch. And as I was standing up, the marketing director, I think it was the marketing director, said to me, Harvey, who would you like us to approach to blurb the book, You know, to endorse what you've written? who you haven't already mentioned to us. And the people that I'd already mentioned included the great historian, Eric Foner, and also Christopher Hitchens, who's passed away since, columnist and writer. And they were definitely going to do it, but they said, who else would you like? And I just blurted out, without even thinking, Bill Moyers. And the only reason I later realized that I did, some years earlier, when I co-edited a book titled The American Radical, back in 1993-94, we had heard from the publishing house and our editor there, that Moyers had Requested a few copies of the book because he was thinking about doing a series on American radicals for television, and it might serve as a, a basis for it. Nothing seemed to come of that, but I somehow, in the back of my brain, I it must have just popped into my head about Thomas Paine. So that was it. And months went by. That was October of 2004. Months went by, and then in March of 2005, here's what happened. I went to the dentist that day, and as a consequence, I never went to my office because I had I had novocaine, whatever they call it these days, and I didn't want to dribble over anybody. <laughs> no, <laughs> spritz on him. But that night, I thought, "You know, I ought to go check my mail at the university." So my wife and I drove over to the university, and she was sitting out in the car while I ran in to check my mail. And I grabbed the stuff out of the mailbox, and as I was passing my own office, I thought, oh, should I Open the door to see if there's any phone messages. And I did, and the, f- the phone was blinking. Somebody had left a message. And this is the message I received. Professor
3: Kay, this is uh, Bill Moyers in New York at uh, Public Television. I just wanted to inform you that I'm about to uh, file a legal suit against you uh, for uh, inducing insomnia and unaccepted flashes of of uh, euphoria upon reading in galley form your book on Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine is one of my heroes. I have been for a year uh, fooling around with how to do a film about him, even though there there are no archival footage. Uh,
0: As soon as I heard that, first I got scared because as people heard, he was threatening a lawsuit. (laughs) And then at the end, I thought, oh my God, Bill Moyers liked my book. So I called my editor and I played for him the tape. I I put my phone next to the machine so he could hear the tape. And my editor said, it worked. And I said, "What worked. He goes, well, remember when you did, you know, you mentioned Bill Moyers. I said, yeah. He said, I paid attention to what you said. So when we got the galleys, you know, the sort of advanced copies of the book that they use for publicity, he said, I talked to the senior vice president, the, the woman he reported to at the publishing house, who was a friend of Bill Moyers. He said to her, can you get this to Bill Moyers? She said, as a matter of fact, we're having dinner this Friday night. Bill and his wife be together for dinner. He gave Bill the book and it turned out, you heard the story. He just loved it. So I said, what am I going to do? I don't, he didn't leave his phone number in this voice. <laughs> voice and then several days later, the phone rang and a, a woman's voice said, uh, is this Harvey Kay? I said, yes. Would you be willing to take a call from Bill Moyers? It was Bill's assistant. I said, would I? So Bill and I had a very long conversation and we kind of became friends by way of a series of phone calls and emails and stuff like that during the course of the next almost three years. We never met. And then I was due to fly to New York. I got invited to give something called the Thomas Paine Memorial Lecture in New York City at this really fine library in Midtown, New York. So I told Bill that I would be there. Maybe he could come to the lecture. He said, Oh, I'm not going to miss that. We'll get together for sure. And then a week before that event, I get a call from Bill apologizing he can't be there because he has to be in Washington that week. But you know what? I was so thrilled to be going to New York I thought, okay, life goes on. Someday it'll happen. My wife and I arrive in New York, go into the hotel. All the expenses are covered. And I said, let's go to that restaurant down on the corner, that Italian restaurant. Let's not take a cab. Let's just go down there and let's have a drink and eat whatever food they have on the menu that we'd like. <laughs> so we went down and they had mussels. I love mussels. They had mussels on the menu. So, and I ordered a glass of champagne. I'm celebrating. Good way through the meal. I'm on my third glass of champagne. There he is. <laughs> This was too exciting. I mean, in part because it was the first time, and I think it was the first time we were in New York in a hotel, and we didn't have the kids with us. My phone rings in the middle of the meal. Good thing I hadn't turned it off. And I I answered it, and it's a woman's voice, and it's that same voice that so Bill couldn't make. It said said uh, Professor Kay. I said yes. Can I talk to you for a moment? And I said, Well, I've got go to go. I've got to stand up. I'm at a restaurant at a table. I need to go into the cloakroom to be able to hear things properly. She told me her name. She said, This is Bill's assistant, and. um bill asked me to go to your lecture with a video crew that he'd really like to get a, a videotape of your lecture so he could watch it himself i said really i said that'd be great sure please do and then she said would you be free this week if bill decided you should come into the studio i said well i'm doing the lecture i'd be more than happy to come in. She so well, let me ask you a few questions and i said you know i have to confess to you i've had three glasses of champagne <laughs> I may be a little silly. She said, no, actually, you're great. She said, in fact, would you mind if I run over and join you and your wife as I was like having a good time? So I said, well, as long as you put it like that, let me ask you, you're basically checking me out, right? Checking me out to make sure Bill should have me on. And I thought by this time he would have known it would be worthwhile. But anyhow, so we joked about it. And then she said, let me call you back tomorrow morning after this stuff. And she called and said, can you come in? I guess it was the the following day. I said, man, absolutely. So, It was funny. I'm in the green room. My wife is in the green room with me. And then I go into the makeup room, TV, you know, and I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there talking to the woman who's the makeup artist. And I see over my shoulder, because I'm looking at a mirror, I see Bill walk in. And Bill says, Harvey, we finally meet. I'm telling you what I said. This is honest to God. I said, well, I'm a little disappointed we didn't get to meet first over dinner. He said, but we can do that sometime. He said, why do you say that? I said, because we're going into tape. I'm bound to use the F word at some point. (laughs) He said, don't worry, this is tape. We can edit it out. By the way, I I didn't use the F word. So we go into the studio and it was my luck, actually. Something was going on in the building that was causing trouble for taping. So instead of taping for what becomes a 15-minute interview, we were together for two hours talking. And I'll keep that as a private conversation, which it was, but it was phenomenal. You can only imagine how excited I was being in studio with Bill Morris. So Bill stops at a certain point. He says, oh, by the way, Harvey, this is about your book. We'll talk politics too, but let's let's use this to promote your book. He said, I want you back in the next year sometime. We're going to have you back. I want this not to be the only time we're in studio. Well, I can tell you that yeah, this is immodest, but In the course of the next several years, he had me in for three shows. I know you'll probably be showing everyone the Four Freedoms show that we did, which I think is probably the best television I've ever done. He was just wonderful that day. Then I'll also add as a sidebar to that, this is terribly immodest, that weekend was the NFC Championship. So I'm back home. It was the Giants versus the Packers. Favre was the quarterback. We lost. But at the halftime, I got an email from Norman Lear, the great TV producer, who was Bill's buddy. He saw me with Bill, and he said he really wanted to talk to me. And and I ended up becoming friendly with Norman as well to work on a project, uh, not unlike the project we're doing, but online kinds of stuff. It was called Remix America, which really was a take back America kind of thing, which didn't last very long. It just didn't work the way he wanted it to. But we became friends. By the way, Norman used the F word a lot when we talked. (laughs) So so I did too. But it was the case that Norman said to me the very first time he spoke, he said, I'm calling you because I want you to do some work with me. But I have to tell you, the reason I called you and nobody else is you made Bill smile more than any of his guests ever did.
1: Professor K, it is not immodest. What we're saying is it can be fulfilling to take back America. And we're going to hit play on this right now. Professor Harvey K with Bill Moyers. You're going to love it. Professor K, tell me to hit play. Play. No, how about this? Make it so. I am
4: to the I am somebody. Back in mid-January of 1980, another race for the presidency was underway. Then, as now, many Americans were worried about the economy and the failed policy in the Mideast. They hungered for change and hope. Along came a former California governor named Ronald Reagan. He rallied his party at the Republican National Convention with these patriotic words.
2: We have it in
4: our power to begin the world over again. Calling for a revolution, Reagan chose those words from the writings of America's first great radical and our first best-selling author. His name was Thomas Paine. Over two centuries ago this month, Paine's most famous book, Common Sense, sold what today would be 15 million copies. Farmers in the Fields stopped to read it. Other influential works followed, including The American Crisis, which proclaimed, These are times that try men's souls. George Washington took those words to heart when he ordered his troops to be read Paine's passionate call for liberty as they went into battle. Thomas Paine's extraordinary life was both glorious and tragic. He was not always revered by his contemporaries. You can read the story in this book by Harvey J.K., Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. Harvey K. teaches history and social change at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. He has dedicated much of his life arguing for Paine's decisive influence on the American experiment in democracy. Harvey J.K. was in town this week lecturing on Tom Paine, and he's with us now. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Harvey, I have never met a historian more enthusiastic about his subject than you are about Thomas Paine. You seem obsessed with him. Why?
0: Uh, Well, I met Paine when I was a child at my grandfather's apartment in Brooklyn, New York. And if my grandfather, who was a trial lawyer, if he felt that way about Paine, I figured I ought to speak. I ought to feel that way, too. So I adopted him. And uh, I didn't I wasn't an American historian to begin with. Um, I started out in Latin American studies. I moved into British studies. But I came to the conclusion that the only way to make a difference was to speak American. And the way to do that was to embrace my hero, Thomas Paine, in a public way. So in the 90s, it was time to start talking Paineite language. And, and I did so because there was no other writer from the past who spoke to Americans, it struck me, in the way he did and spoke to Americans in every generation and still does. How do you mean spoke to Americans? Well, when Payne came to America, he came at the age of 37. When he came to America- Poor and uh, Poor, he had, been, he had been fired by the British government as a, having been a tax collector. Um, Franklin had encouraged him to come, but they probably expected little to come of it. Um, well, well, who knows what goes on in the minds of someone like Franklin. But Payne came to America and almost overnight he fell in love with the country. He saw incredible possibilities, incredible prospects. And I think, I think even with the contradictions of slavery and, and the developing inequality, mm. he saw that Americans had it... Indeed, to make the world over again. Or Americans had it to become Americans. I think that's what he did, as he said to Americans... No, 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 that sounds like a cliche. What do you mean, to become American? Americans were in the middle of a rebellion. They were already fighting a war. But meanwhile, Washington, when he had his officers together, as late as January 76, was still toasting the king. Uh, Jefferson, Adams, they all, they all said, look, we're part of one nation with the British. And Paine looked out, and he saw, said my goodness, these people can govern themselves. They were already doing so by way of committees in Philadelphia and up in Boston. And he he believed that they needed to be made aware of what they were doing. So it's as if Paine saw what Americans hadn't yet seen, but were already themselves doing. And yet...
4: Who knows him today? I mean, he's not on Mount Rushmore, there's no swell monument to him on the mall. Ask a hundred kids in school to name our founding fathers, and they name Washington and Jefferson and Adams and that group. Not one of them is likely to name Payne. You know, this is
0: interesting. That's what I thought. But when I meet people, you know, I, I ride in a cab or I walk down, or even my students, and somehow they hear a line out of Thomas Paine. And they say, oh, I know that. Or they, and then they realize, oh, that's somebody my father used to talk about. In other words, Paine is the kind of figure from the American Revolution who was passed on, and every generation passed it on in their own fashion. You know, the, the powerful and the propertied and the privileged, the pious, they all tried to suppress Paine's memory. They often talked about him so much that it probably excited young people to read him. And over and over again, whenever they tried to suppress his memory, a new generation of liberals and progressives and radicals in America reclaimed Thomas Paine to ma- to lay claim to America's purpose and promise, because he spoke of democratic america so democratic america being the bringing the common people yeah that that the common people that uh, that americans could be citizens and not merely subjects that 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 people had it within themselves not only to listen to their superiors but literally to speak to each other and deliberate and govern themselves and to overthrow their superiors and to overthrow <laughs> their superiors absolutely and I mean, you mean,
4: say he turned americans into radicals and quoting you we have remained radicals at heart ever since.
0: What do you mean You know, radical? I hesitated to say that when I wrote it. And, I, and there was a friend of mine who's, who was visiting with his, with his wife. And his wife read the little bit of the book that I had written. And she said, why don't you say what you really want to say? And I said, what do you mean? She goes, you know what you really want to say is that pain made us all into radicals. And I said, that's right. That's what I want to say. And I stuck that in. And I felt comfortable with it. And what I re- meant is that, that, look, working men's parties free thinkers, abolitionists, um, suffragists, populists, socialists, progressives, uh, peace activists. Paine's memory was never forgotten, even though we didn't always find him on the mole in Washington, in monuments elsewhere. But, you know, Andrew Jackson, I think it was Jackson made the remark, he said, Paine doesn't need a monument, you know, his words will forever be his monument. And I bet If everyone gets themselves a copy of Common Sense and at bedtime starts to read it, they'll feel like they're reading a friend, someone who's speaking directly to them.
4: And yet, as you say, and as you heard in that film clip, it's conservatives today from whom you hear more about
0: pain, right? Right. Well, for two hundred years, conservatives went out of their way to suppress his memory, to speak scornfully of him, and then the one because he wanted to overthrow his superior, and he wanted America to. For Payne, it wasn't just the idea of making a democracy. For Payne and for Whitman, and 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 for others like them the idea was america was about always experimenting at the limits extending freedom deepening equality making democracy all the more a part of everyday life we find that from pain all the way through even to the likes of, of franklin roosevelt these kinds of aspirations reagan began as a roosevelt democrat four okay? times he
4: voted for franklin Roosevelt,
0: th- and in fact campaigned for truman i understand so imagine this imagine this here's reagan okay he comes he, he he admires this man tremendously he hears Roosevelt quote Thomas Paine in 1942 to rally Americans. By the way, he was the first President, Roosevelt, to quote Thomas Paine and use his name since Jefferson. And Reagan hears it. That was one possibility. I've always wondered where Reagan got Paine. One possibility was Roosevelt. The second possibility was Reagan was on the left. The bestseller of the day was Howard Fast's Citizen Paine. One can't help but imagine Reagan, who loved reading popular history, probably read Citizen Paine. You write in here that liberals
4: today seem to have all but abandoned the belief that democratic small, the democratic transformation remains both imperative and possible, and that, and that pain had confidence in working people that Democrats today don't have, uh, even I, though they try to right. get working I, people's I, I vote. I think
0: it's interesting that just when Reagan is late, conservatives, because of Reagan, decided they would try to appropriate. Thomas Paine in the same way he, Reagan, tried to appropriate Roosevelt. In fact, in his Republican National Convention acceptance speech, he quotes Roosevelt and yeah. Paine. So, Republicans now feel, feel good about it, and they take a little piece of Thomas Paine. They take the piece of Thomas Paine where Paine in the beginning of Common Sense talks about how government is an evil. It's, you know, it's a necessary evil. They don't read that statement in the context of Paine's argument, and that is that, that people have a kind of inherent democratic instinct. And it's the government of the day that may be evil, that monarchical, aristocratic regime, but that Americans have it in themselves to create a government that's democratic and set a model for the world. Well, Papers, now, liberal... I'm sorry. Go, no, go ahead. Go and, ahead. And, and, what, and something happened in the 70s. The Liberals and radicals divided themselves, okay? It, all bro- it was breaking up post-'68. I mean, this is my generation we're talking about. there was. Conservatives were utterly worried that the vast progressive cohorts were going to create some singular movement. Meanwhile, liberals and leftists are falling apart. They're going at each other like cats and dogs. And liberal politicians, watching the rise of the new right, pull back. They were unscared. We saw it with, Car- I mean, Carter was the first of the conservative Democrats, to my mind. Um, it, the, the Clinton years. I mean, Clinton gave people hope when he ran. He talked about change. What did we get? We got a Democratic Party, or at least we got a Democratic administration that put more of its political capital into getting NAFTA passed, which was a Republican initiative, than they did to passing national health care. So one can imagine that Americans themselves are wondering, wait a minute, why do I need, why do I need to, to, to lean liberal and democratic? I mean, what's going on here? And you know, we see candidates today, each laying themselves before the people, presenting themselves. They each present themselves in particular ways. I'm waiting for that candidate f- who's going to capture that pain-eyed spirit. In some ways, as bizarrely as Reagan did and said, this is this about democracy. We can do great things and lay them out. Here are three smart candidates, if we think Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and John Edwards. Okay? And I ask myself, why, amongst the Democratic cohorts, say, in the Congress and in the Senate, we're not seeing people come forth and saying, okay, we may not be able to get a timetable for withdrawal from Iraq, Let's get a timetable for national health care. Let's ask our Congress, congressional comrades, the Republicans, are they willing to support national health care? We don't even have to lay out a plan. We just want to have a timetable for how we're going to go about doing it. I ask myself why we don't hear Democratic candidates say, we're Americans, we have nothing to be afraid of with immigration. In fact, why not a new deal on immigration? Why aren't we investing heavily in incorporating, if you like, people don't like to use this word, on assimilating all these new immigrants. Why do we view them as a threat? Why are, why are, why are we afraid of the very people who remind us of what we're about? Mm. One of your peers, whom I admire very much, Joseph
4: Ellis, wrote a very good review of your book, a very favorable review of your book. Uh, he's a historian right. himself. But he went on to say, bringing pain's words and ideas into our world would be
0: like trying to plant cut flowers. I actually feared his review before I got to read it, because I had no idea he would actually like anything I had to say. But then I got to the end, and I thought, how sad. Well, the, the loss of hope, the loss of aspiration. Well, Americans should always be trying to plant flowers, okay? Mm-hmm. To, we, there are ways of sprouting things anew, and that's what America's about. We have no reason to fear. We have no reason to be cynical, no reason to be desperate. But what's happened to the democratic impulse and aspiration that were the heart of Thomas I Paine's I think message? it's there. I mean, back in the 90s, there were some very interesting studies done that showed Americans still subscribed to those very things, but they were looking for some kind of leadership. Not a leadership that was demagogic, and not a leadership that would necessarily exploit those aspirations, but a leadership that would speak to them. You know, there were those figures since Payne who did that kind of thing. Um, One can think about, I mean, the poetry of Walt Whitman. One can think about Eugene Debs. One can think about Franklin Roosevelt. You can hear in Roosevelt this confidence in his fellow Americans. Um, you, could even hear it, you could even hear it when LBJ spoke of, of the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts. You, there were those moments when Democratic politicians did grab hold of that kind of spirit. But you know what's funny? When Reagan quoted Paine, once he was in president in the presidency, he went before the National Association of Evangelicals at Disney World and quoted Thomas <laughs> Paine. Ralph Reed, in his first book, praised Thomas Paine for having harnessed ideas out of the Bible for common sense. Why is it that conservative and Republican types, they ask the right questions? See, that's the thing. The conservatives have been asking the right questions. They get out the wrong answers. <laughs> we, don't, we need to start asking the right questions. We need to have this kind of confidence in our fellow citizens that they somehow are able to... Ha- they. They take advantage of that confidence, okay? It's our job to join with our fellow citizens and, 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 and join them in the courage that we have. The book is Thomas Paine and the Promise of America.
4: Harvey J.K., thanks for being with us. It's good to see you.
0: Oh, thank you.
2: By a river of discontent A straining to old Tom Paine as running down the road he went He said, I can't stop right now child King George is after me He'd have a rope around my throat And hang me on the liberty tree And I will dance to Tom Paine's bones. I'll dance to Tom Paine's bones. Dancing the oldest boots I own To the rhythm of Tom Paine. I will dance to Tom Paine's bones. Dance to Tom Paine's bones. Dancing the oldest boots I own. From the rhythm of Tom Paine's bones. Well, I only talked about freedom and justice for everyone. But since the penny first one I spoke I've been looking down the barrel of a gun And they say I preached revolution Let me see in my defense That all I did wherever I went Was to talk a lot of common sense And I will dance to Tom Paine's bones Dance to Tom Paine's bones Dancing the oldest boots I own To little Tom Paine's bones I will dance to Tom Paine's bones Dance to Tom Paine's bones Dancing in the oldest boots I own To the rhythm of Tom Paine's bones Well old Tom Paine ran so fast He left me standing still And that I was a piece of paper in my hand Standing at the top of the hill And it said this is the age of reason These are the rights of man Kick off religion and monarchy It was written in Tom Paine's plan Dance the to Tompaine's bones. I'll dance the to Tom Paine's bones. Dance in the oldest boots, I hope, the rhythm of Tom Paine's bones. I will dance the to Tom Paine's bones. Dance the to Tom Paine's bones. Dance in the oldest boots, I own. the rhythm of the Tompaine's bones. Wallow Tomping Betty lies. Nobody laughs, nobody cries. When he's gone or how he fears Nobody knows, nobody cares But I will dance to Tom Payne's bones I'll dance to Tom Payne's bones, dance, to Tom bones. dance in the oldest boots I own The rhythm of Tom Payne's bones I will dance to Tom Payne's bones I'll dance to Tom Payne's bones Dancing the oldest boots I own the rhythm of Tomkins bones I will dance the Tomkins bones dance the Tomkins bones dancing the oldest boots I own to the rhythm of Tom bones I will dance the Tomkins bones dance the Tomkins bones dancing Tom the oldest boots I own the rhythm of bones
1: You're listening to the KC Morning Show.